What's up, interpreters? My name is Ahmed Toure. I am the new visitor services program manager with Virgin Islands National Park on the island of St. John, U.S. Virgin Islands. What's up, interpreters? I am NAI Executive Director Paul Caputo. With me, as always, is me. My name is Song. I am the events and engagement manager for NAI, and welcome to the, another episode of What's Up Interpreters. Ahmed, we are thrilled that you are here on this podcast with us. The first time I met you, and I think Paul too, was at the NAI National Conference in Cleveland. And you, my friend, we were a nominee for the NPS Tilden Award. Yeah, so me and a colleague were there because we won a group our group regional Tilden Award from the National Capital Region, where, where we were out from the DC area. In the National Park Service, each region nominates people, and then there's a winner from each region. And the winners from the region actually get a paid trip to the NAI conference to see who gets the national award. So that's um, how I ended up going uh, this time. You know, it was paid for through work. Yeah. Were you just like, holy crap, there are so many interpreters here? (laughs) Basically, I was I was overwhelmed a little bit and surprised at who I didn't actually consider as interpreters. When I go to an aquarium, I do think of those folks as interpreters, but it just never really dawned on me how many there were or that people who worked at the zoo could be interpreters, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was that was uh, really cool actually um and then the plenaries that were going on the um what is it the exhibit hall that y'all have there yeah um, where you can see different companies that are um have different interpretive products and help with waysides and uh apps and all that kind of stuff yeah i thought it was a really valuable experience to know what actually is going on at these nai conferences Tell us about the the project that was nominated for the Tilden Award. At the time I came to the conference, I actually was supervisory ranger for National Capital Parks East, uh, Frederick Douglass, Mary McLeod Bethune, Carter G. Woodson sites. But the year before, I had actually been working for the George Washington Memorial Parkway in D.C., or also in D.C., and I have been at, that's where I started my career with the, with the parkway. And over the past Well, since 2014, I had been going up to Harper's Ferry Center with interpreters and park rangers from all over the country. Um, Harper's Ferry Center in West Virginia is kind of like one of the park services main hubs for interpretive training and like the evolution of interpretation. So we've been studying like participatory interpretation. We call it ACE audience centered engagement, but it's like similar to the museum hack method or, you know, yeah, um, it's kind of where the field is going right now, right? We actually won our award for work that we were doing to help train new interpreters that are coming to the Arlington House Robert Hilly Memorial. Because over the past few years, pre-pandemic, the Parkway has been trying to really revamp and tell her fuller story of the history of Arlington House, uh, what happened on the Arlington Plantation, the people who live there, et cetera, because really and truly the National Park Service hasn't done a very good job at most of its sites 
um, I would say, about telling a complete history of the United States. The history is often whitewashed. Uh, so definitely at the Robert E. Lee Memorial, like the story is focusing on Robert E. Lee. And unfortunately, the place is kind of like a mecca for Confederate sympathizers and lost cause uh, Civil War people. And the Park Service has never really addressed it in a meaningful way. And me personally, I do think that it has that that not addressing such a thing in this place specifically is what has allowed lost cause history to proliferate and cause some of the issues that we saw bubble up in 2020. When the mass shootings in North Carolina carried out by Dylan Ruth happened, then director of the National Park Service, John Jarvis, instructed all of the, all the Civil War parks and places like Harper's Ferry that were selling Confederate memorabilia and Confederate flags and things like this to not do this anymore unless it had a specific historical and interpretive uh, message or reason. Lots of people actually started flocking up to Arlington House at this point in time because they were afraid that their monument was going to be taken down for whatever reason, which it's not really something that happens in national parks. But it became evident to our park and our leadership that it was even more important to tell a fuller history of what's going on there. Around 2019, when the pandemic hit, the Arlington House had still gone through, like, had been going through a multi-year revamp. And they got a group of rangers in the region to kind of look over what had been done. And there was still a lot of problematic language um, in the interpretive waysides, et cetera. Even the people that they were hiring were not culturally competent to interpret slavery in a respectful manner. They were still mainly centering the story around Robert E. Lee and his family, telling histories that to the to the tone of uh, like benevolent slave masters, good slave masters, that kind of thing, which is just really a fallacy. You know, it's it's not really true, especially in the case of Robert E. Lee. So I actually was one of the top ACE and interpretive trainers at my park and the superintendent and the chief of interpretation asked me to put together training. So I actually got together a team of interpreters to put together a comprehensive training. I did a training for the interpretive staff one year and I did a training for the volunteers uh, the next year because that program was also changing very drastically they were really going to stop doing the uh, first-person interpretation like with people dressed in costume and whatnot. Because the women used to go up there in like big hoop skirts and this kind of thing. And um, just the mentality and the cultural competence behind interpreting in that way and the image that it actually set for the type of visitors that would come there, you know, is essentially romanticizing the antebellum period. So the superintendent decided that they weren't going to do that anymore and had shut that program down. But a lot of the volunteers were resistant to that and they wanted to come back when the park reopened. So they were basically told that they needed to go through some training before returning. That's what the project that, that we had done. And then later on, it got uh, nominated for this award. How did you get into interpretation? I mean, it seems like you've been in the field for quite a while. How did you? Did interpretation find you or did you specifically 
move your career toward a professional career in interpretation? Both of those things happened. I started my, I started with the park service. I actually went to business school at American university and that was because my parents were paying for college and <laughs> that's what they asked me to do. I wanted to be a graphic designer. So I decided to take a minor in graphic design while I was at AU. And um, instead of going to business internships, like the other suits in my class, I was like, I need to find a design internship. And one day my design professor sent an email out to all of us in class. And it was like for a local park called Oxen Hill Farm out in Maryland. And they needed a junior ranger booklet designed. And I'd like being outside anyways. I, I never really, I grew up in a military family. So I also never really wanted to be like a civilian in that kind of way. I wanted to be a federal employee like my parents. So I saw that as a great opportunity to like use my design skills, get a college internship and be outside all at the same time. And uh, I love this. Yeah, <laughs> I love this was, so much. It was an amazing, it was an amazing experience. When I got there, the Rangers started telling me about interpretations. I learned a little bit about it. I took all the, they never had a junior ranger book. So I wrote up all the activities. I took all the photographs. I drew illustrations. I designed the book. It was a hit. It won an award that basically granted a 10-year uh, print run because it was also printed with sustainable ink and materials. So it won like a 10-year print run. And the Rangers kind of told me that I was good at interpretation. And they were like, oh, you should be a park ranger. And I kind of fell for that. <laughs> um, they got you. They, they got me. I mean, I was outside, <laughs> yeah. you know? So after that, I, I still didn't really understand what interpretation was because really to me, I just like designed a, an activity book for kids. I saw what the Rangers were doing when, when school groups would come to the park, but I, it still wasn't really clicking. One of the major things though that clicked for me is that I still had to do a lot of re research to make this book. And I got a hold of, you know, primary documents that was talking, because this place was actually plantation and the plantation house that's on the top of the hill there, like they could see the burning of Washington, D.C. in the in the War of 1812. But so I'm looking through these records and I'm seeing like how they were referring to the enslaved people. And I'm understanding the socioeconomic complexities of what things were like, especially in this in the D.C. area, you know, during the time of enslavement. And I couldn't help but like see reflections into like how historians is talking about enslaved people today the socioeconomic uh realities for black and brown people in the united states today and like really i was just like not much has changed except for like like i don't know the climate's still the same but the weather is a little bit different hmm. however that goes but literally I was just like, I feel like I wanted to tell that story. Because also, is there a story of enslavement there at this park? But most of it's a, the only 19th century working farm still in the area. So they have animals. They have cows, chickens, you know, goat, sheep, 
all there. And that's mostly the interpretation that was going on was of this 19th century farm. And it was barely slavery was being talked about. On the weekends, they would open up the plantation house and they would talk about it. I mean, it, to, today it's a little bit better, but from the time I was there to the time that I left and then started working for the Park Service, there's been a huge gap to where they weren't really talking about enslavement at all. And right now, like literally that's the park that I just came back from, right? Because National Capital Parks East also has Oxen Hill Farm in it and it has Douglas, Woodson, Bethune. Right now, the house only gets opened up on very rare occasions when they're having special events and stuff. They might open the house and let people go through there. But like telling those stories, learning about this history and sharing it is what really caught me about interpretation, especially like in the D.C. area. So I interned for a very long time with the Student Conservation Association. I did like three years worth of internships. Um, like temporary stuff, like maybe six months at a time. And then a lot of I, interning. I did a lot of interning. I had a couple positions that were like one year long. Uh huh. But really, what happened is that Junior Ranger book, a lot of people saw it in the region. And then people would come and look for me, basically. Like, who's who was this guy that made this? Then my information would get passed around. People would call me and offer me internships and jobs internships I should say because it wasn't jobs really at that time then I start I started doing trail crews and that's what really that's how I really got into the park service because when I was doing trail work I met this guy who was an ex-marine sniper and he told me that he did wildland firefighting and I was like well you know what's that and he's like well I'm on a hell attack crew and I jump out of helicopters with a chainsaw on my back into, into fires and we <laughs> fight the fire we put the fire out what? I think I that saw that movie that <laughs> right wild. that's 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 what he said to me and as a kid who grew up in the mil in a military family going on helicopters on field day and what, well not flying in helicopters but like you know climbing inside of helicopters and whatnot and seeing all this stuff I didn't want to join the military by the time I was out of college I knew that I didn't want to join the military that it doesn't match up with my value system but this job that he was describing to me was like, that was it for me. So I actually chased that down. And one of my mentors along the way, right before I got into the park service, he had used to be, he used to be a wildland firefighter as well. And I told him like, that was my goal. And he told me basically that if I was an interpretive park ranger, if I was able to get to be an interpretive park ranger, that's one of the most versatile jobs in the National Park Service, and that I should definitely be able to be a wildland firefighter, you know, sometimes if I had the full-time job as an interpretive park ranger. And he said, like, there's a number of, there's no direct path in the National Park Service, like, people kind of just get in where they fit in, and then they can go all kinds of different ways, but this position as an interpretive park ranger is like the one that really has the most variety of skills that you can do and obtain. So that's really um, what got me there. And then once I got an interpretive ranger position, it like all the stuff that I had learned at Oxen Hill and all the things that I had been seeing before really started to click. And I realized how important and powerful 
like interpretation was, especially for what I was not, what I was not seeing and what I was not hearing being told in the parks. So, so you've been with the park service more than a decade. You've been in interpretation. You have this new role in the Virgin islands. I don't mean to brag, but I'm actually recording this right now from ocean city, New Jersey. I'm on the Jersey shore. So we're both in sort of cool tropical locations right now, but the, uh, you know, with your new role in the Virgin Islands, you know, so much of the the work that you've described has has been so important in terms of telling inclusive stories and and advocating for social justice and and making sure that that the issues that we need to to remember the stories that we need to remember are being told. How are you carrying that work forward now in your new role in uh, the Virgin Islands? Everything I've been doing has culminated to this point. My cultural background, my mother's family is from Dominica, lower down in, in the Antilles. And uh, they immigrated to the U.S. via the Virgin Islands back in the 60s, 70s. And my family's been here ever since. The three islands of the U.S. Virgin Islands is St. Thomas, St. John, and St. Croix. And I, my family's mainly been on St. Thomas, but I have family on all three of these islands. So when I first got my job in 2011, I actually had come out here because my grandfather was um, passing away in 2012. And uh, I came out here and I visited St. John because I wanted to see what the park was like. I took a look at the visitor center. I wanted to also see what, uh, what the interpretation was like. And it was like many other places I'd been. And the ranger that I encountered who took me on the Reef Bay hike, I went on a Reef Bay hike with a group of visitors. Um, I didn't tell anybody I was a park ranger at the time. I just went as a visitor. I was actually really impressed by, you know, how she presented the historical information, but I didn't necessarily see what she was saying reflected in the brochure, reflected in the visitor center, et cetera. So I always had a goal to come work here at some point. And really, I just wanted to be a park ranger in the field. But all my time in 2014 and, and beyond, like learning about the evolution of interpretation, tr uh, learning about how to train other people and just following along with what's going on in the industry was just so that whenever I did, whenever there were job openings and I had an opportunity to be an interpretive ranger here that you know, I was hoping that with my skill set, nobody would be able to beat me out. And it, it just so happened that this kind of the chief position came open. And honestly, the chief position out here hasn't been filled permanently for 10 years or so. So I really just, I was just like, let me put my resume in. I wasn't necessarily ready to leave uh, my other park, but Whenever I get a new position, I give it a couple years and then I just like test my resume out just to see what gaps I need to fill for the next position. So that's really all I was doing. But I got called up for an interview. And, you know, when I was offered the job, I definitely was ready to come with the skill sets that I've built up. I have had great mentors and a great network um, in DC and across the country. So really, Everything that I've been talking about and whatnot, yeah, uh, that's exactly what I'm doing here. It's after Hurricanes Irma and Maria, the division and the park really like lost a lot of people. 
So I, there was only one full-time permanent uh, park guide here when I got here. They shifted uh, another student trainee over. So it was like a pathway student. So there was really only two people on the division. I've hired a couple people. We're changing out waysides at the Annaberg Plantation. Like, There's a lot of things going on here right now. It's a really critical time for Virgin Islands National Park. But uh, yeah, so uh, the whole skill set that I've built up over these past uh, 12 years has prepared me for this. And I'm, I feel blessed and ready to you know, face the challenges that I know are here. I, did, I definitely didn't come here um, ignorant of the challenges that this park has. Well, I've been to St. Thomas, Ahmed, and I guarantee after this podcast drops, you're going to get so many more friend requests from NAI members <laughs> <laughs> to come visit and to be your friend. And um, I think this is super exciting work that you're doing. And I love to hear your career story because, um, you know, it's definitely, like you said, there's so many different types of interpreters, as you saw at National Conference. You can take these skill sets literally anywhere. And I love that. But I do think it's so sad. I could talk to you like for hours and hours, but um, I think we better wrap it up. All right. So what we do here, and we've we've tried this a number of times, we were, we're yet to really nail it. But we try all three really at the good. same. We're going to nail it right now. We're going to nail this one. So Ahmed, thank you again for being here. And uh, it was great to chat with you. Great to hear your story. Hope to see you in Little Rock. And, and interpreters. interpreters that's, that's what's, what's up. up. That was pretty good. That might I think be our that best was one good. yet. <laughs> thank you so Ahmed, much. This this, this really was a, so, much. A, so fascinating to hear your story. Absolutely. Thanks so much for the invite. Thanks for having me.